Hey, Joe. How's it going, man? Good. How you doing, Sean? Yeah, great. Where in the world are you? I'm in San Antonio, Texas right now. Okay. We've just been watching something about the Texas Rangers on TV, um, on Netflix. Um, <laughs> kill, solving si the, the railway serial killer. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, your expertise is JFK, MLK, RFK, Malcolm X, various topics. Would you say JFK is your biggest one? Um, well, actually, I mean, uh, not, not really. Um, it's, it's sort of how it began. Uh, but to the extent that I'm known at all, it's for, uh, for other various things that, I'm, that I've written about. But I've written very extensively about JFK. Um, I do it a little bit differently, though, because I tend to see the JFK assassination in a continuum of other political action and other assassinations. So it's a broader sort of uh, up here kind of a view as opposed to into the, the inside. It's not I don't view it as a murder mystery. Yeah, I view it as a continuum as well of vested interests, yes. assassinating people throughout the 60s. It seems like back then the lone gunman was popular. Um, these days it's character assassination, sexual blackmail and all that kind of stuff, isn't it? Yep. Yep, definitely. And, and, to some, and sometimes occasional assassination. I mean, it's, you know, uh, depends on what's going on. It depends on, on the, the, the individual. But they're not using the lone gunman so often, are they? Well, that's a that's a broader and longer conversation uh, that I wasn't really prepared to get into. But I think sometimes it is a lone gunman uh, still. Um, there are certainly we have, of course, the United States leads the world in mass shootings. And some of those mass shootings are highly suspect indeed. What about the bullet that stopped short of President Reagan's heart? And the Bush family having dinner or being associated with that assassin. Any thoughts on that before we get into JFK? Yeah, no. Uh, my see, my mentor was a gentleman named John Judge who did a lot of great work on the Reagan assassination attempt. And uh, in fact, it is it is very bizarre because it took them this the surgeons a long time to find what was in Ronald Reagan. They were looking for the bullet. And when they finally dug it out, they had to go back, I think, three or four times. They described it as almost like a flechette, as a kind of a flat. It did not appear to be a bullet. And this is just straight off the AP stories. Um, the doctor is telling the reporters that's what he found. And that story has since disappeared. Like, no one ever followed up on what exactly that meant. Um, but there's a lot of odd things surrounding that particular assassination. And you're absolutely right. Neil Bush... Uh, was scheduled to have dinner with uh, John Hinckley's brother, I think the, either the next night or the night after. And, of course, the, the Hinckley's had been longtime friends of the Bushes. Uh, but, again, this was a story that nobody really looked at. Um, in my last book, Tinfoil Hat Not Included, I start off with this anecdote from this NPR reporter who says that he never asked the question to Bush, even though he had the opportunity because this is not something that gentlemen do. We don't ask such questions. Amazing. Wow, you, you piqued my curiosity now. Mm -hmm. What, you said there were numerous anomalies. Can we go over some of these, please? 
Uh, sure. I hadn't really, you know, like I hadn't really compared this, but yeah, no, Hankley, the Hankley case is, is bizarre. Um, and, um, so the, the key thing is to, the video is available on YouTube. You can watch the shooting yourself. And there's a couple of things to sort of pay attention to. Um, one is what is the ankle of the shot? Because Reagan is rushing into the car right away and it doesn't look like Hinckley could have gotten a shot off to actually hit Reagan from where he's standing. Um, there's an area right behind that. It doesn't, I've been there. I went there to the, to the place, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, but it's totally unrecognizable from 1981. So you can't make any judgments. And I think they did that deliberately, but uh, there's an area that was behind where Hinckley is shooting that John Judge used to call the Bushy Knoll, um, because there's a, that, that appears to be where the shot is coming from that actually hits Reagan. Um, and the Hinckley is is uh, supposed to be using it's either a 22 or a 32. I can't remember what the caliber was, but he shot a allegedly a policeman, and the policeman said that that was no damn 32. He said, he said, whatever, whatever you got hit with, it was much stronger than just a, a normal 32 bullet. And again, no, none of these things are really followed up about the, the best book that I know of is actually a novel. Um, it's called the assassination of, uh, God, I just lost the title. I have to get back to you on that one, but it's a novel that dates back from the eighties. It's kind of a pulpy novel. Uh, but the author uses all kinds of real, news stories from the period that are quite interesting that are that are in there uh the afternoon of march the 30th that's what that novel is called the afternoon of march 30th i think it's pretty hard to come by these days but uh but it's 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 good so you're already drawing parallels with jfk by referencing noel are there any other parallels with what happened with reagan and what happened with jfk well i mean you have a um an allegedly a lone nut um except the problem is is that when you look into the lone nuts history they don't really seem to be a lone nut um you know the hinckley the hinckley's were a an oil family very prominent a lot of money um hinckley's own travels before the attempted assassination are interesting because they parallel some of the other travels that were done by other supposed lone nuts so hinckley had a lot of cash he was he was riding around on buses. He was staying in very nice hotels, um, and uh, you know then he comes up and and uh, shoots at Reagan. Um, which other you know Arthur Bremer was kind of like that. Um, the uh, the guy who shot uh, Mark David Chapman, who shot John Lennon, is kind of like that. Very s similar, um, and of course Oswald Oswald, who has a absolutely fascinating back history uh, that is not indicative whatsoever of being a lone nut. And aren't the Bush family linked to JFK as well? Didn't Senior um, call something in or say make some statement about where he was? Uh, who, did who say? Um, George H.W. Bush. Yeah, he did. He, um, um, he called in. It's a very, very curious telegram. So Bush was in Texas. Um, I, I believe he was speaking at Fort Worth. And after the assassination, he sent this really strange telegram that named a gentleman, I think his name was James Parrott. And he said, I suggest you look into this guy, James Parrott, because he made threatening statements about uh, John F. Kennedy. And it's kind of bizarre because it's just, 
like I don't know whatever happened with James Parrott um, or what what would be going on there. And it's almost as if um, he's putting out something to indicate that he wasn't there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's a little strange. And there's other there there are other politicians that were like that. Like famously, Richard Nixon couldn't remember where he was when Kennedy was shot. It's a little odd since every other individual who lived through that experience um, knows exactly where they were when Kennedy was shot. Uh, but Nixon doesn't, you know, he can't remember. It's like, oh, I don't know. I was a dairy queen. Uh, you know, very, very strange. So if these assassinations are part of a sequence of events, what is the motive here? Is part of it to get the vice president, the president spot? Because didn't, after Reagan was shot, didn't he pretty much sign over all of his powers to George H.W. Bush? Yeah, yeah. It, it, so that's essentially Bush presidency year one. Um, and it's it's important part of the story to recognize the fact that Bush and Reagan were not friendly. Um, Reagan was more or less forced to take Bush on as the vice president. Um, so these these guys, were they're... You know they're both Republicans, uh, but they're essentially from different areas. They they're they don't really align. Their interests don't align, um, and that is actually spelled out very well in a the unauthorized biography of George Bush, which is by Webster Tarpley and Anton Chaikin. Oh, I love that book. It's a, yeah, it's a good book, and it talks about how like even when they were doing debates before the presidency, uh, Reagan and Bush did not get along, and Bush was not well liked in general. Um, and it, one, one of my favorite things though, is, uh, in the Watergate tapes, which I always recommend people read. If you want to know how politics works, go get the transcriptions of the Watergate tapes. They're amazing. Uh, but at some point there, you know, um, Nixon and Haldeman and Ehrlichman are all talking about this thing that they need done, which is kind of, you know, not, not very savory. And, uh, I think it's Haldeman who says, just give it to George Bush. He'll do anything we tell him. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's a younger George Bush, obviously. So, so what was the role of the vice president in the JFK assassination? Well, that's the that's the question, right? Or that's certainly one of the questions. Um, I tend not to think uh, that Lyndon Johnson is actually the prime mover behind the assassination. Uh, I don't follow the logic of that, um, but there are certainly many researchers who disagree with me and have written that. Um, it seems to me that the that Kennedy is being taken out by the Pentagon. That's generally who would be doing this is the Pentagon. If you're going to assassinate somebody in the United States, that's who you need. Um, but that Lyndon Johnson is waiting for his shot and that maybe he's even informed ahead of time. That's certainly possible. Uh, Lyndon Johnson behaves like a co-conspirator, certainly right after the assassination. And he had a lot to lose. I mean, there was a good chance that, you know, at least theoretically, Lyndon Johnson was not only in trouble of, of losing the vice presidency, but of possibly even going to jail for all this other stuff that was going on with him, um, which, of course, goes away with the Kennedy assassination. However, the fact that it benefits Lyndon Johnson doesn't mean necessarily that he's the one who did it. And I think that's one of the issues about how people think about the assassination. They think, well, the mob hated Kennedy. Well, OK, sure. The mob hated Kennedy. That doesn't mean the mob killed Kennedy, right? You have to you have to 
it's not just a simple line of logic. There are lots of people who don't like the president. There are always lots of people who don't like any particular president. That doesn't mean they kill. Because there's a place where government and criminals coexist, isn't there? And if Absolutely. the government want to contract the mafia to take someone out, then the chain of causation can go back to the mafia and not them. Is that yes. the way they, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that's most prominently in the Kennedy assassination, as opposed to maybe some of the other assassinations, because it's a, it's a huge morass. And one of the reasons is, is because there are these various people who are either involved at a low level or who are said to be involved uh, because that means that you have to, in order to try and sort this thing out, you have to go through ridiculous amounts of documentation and try to figure out, okay, why is this person doing this? And why is this other person doing this? So, and I've talked about this before, like if you want to write a book in which the mob is the prime mover in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, it's very easy to do so. You have to exclude all of the information that points away from the mob only include information that has to do with the mob. And you can write that book and that book has been written many times, you know, mafia Kingfish and all those other ones, um, Lamar Waldron. And, it, and uh, the same thing is true of like the Russians. Like if you want to say the Russians did it, you can point to all the stuff about Oswald in Russia. And, you know, they sent him here as a double, triple agent. If you want to write that book, you can. I don't think it holds water, but it is possible to, to write that book. And the reason it is, is because there's this whole mess, this hall of mirrors that comes out of what I would say is uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, possibly the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Pentagon setting up this process to make it impossible to ever figure out who actually did it. So why are you putting the Pentagon at the top when we're often it's heard that the CIA was at the top? That's part, I mean, part of it is if you were doing a military operation you, to kill the president, you're going to need the Joint Chiefs, right? Those are the guys who are going to do it. And those are, with possibly one or two exceptions, the Joint Chiefs had a very dim view of Kennedy in general, um, part, partly because of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, or maybe largely because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because what happens in the Cuban Missile Crisis is that Kennedy refuses to invade Cuba, which is ultimately what they want. They want us to invade Cuba. And by the way, if we have to go to war with Russia or the Soviet Union at that time, they were prepared to do it, including a nuclear war. And some of those guys think that way. Uh, you know, they think, well, if we're, we're eventually going to go to war with the Soviet Union, it's going to be nuclear, and we better do it now while we have numerical superiority. Now, that's an insane thought, but you can see where they're coming from to, to some extent. And so when Kennedy refuses to do that, they're just like, well, we can't work with this guy. Plus, there's this underlying thing, which basically I agree with Oliver Stone on this, that we need this war, this upcoming war in Vietnam, um, and that's going to make billions of dollars for various companies. And war in general is good, and war has been the primary means of United States expansion uh, since World War II. We're, we're at war with somebody all the time, uh, and it's good for business is the bottom line with that. And because Kennedy had, been, had already been somewhat of a mixed figure when, and this was a lot of this work, um, most recently, 
uh, was done by uh, Jim Diagenia, who's terrific. Um, and they had that, uh, and he and Oliver did the documentary last year with that, which I thought was superb. Um, where they're talking about the fact that Kennedy was uh, a little more radical than most people thought he was, uh, with speeches going back 10 years before he was ever in office, where he's talking about the fact that, that um, other countries have the right to rule themselves, which is not a popular idea with the United States, right? There are certain, you know, ever going back to the Monroe Doctrine, there are other countries that belong to us. You know, Latin America is ours. Everybody stay away from Latin America. This is ours. And so when Cuba, you know, when, when Bautista gets thrown out and is replaced by um, Fidel Castro, and suddenly the Soviet Union has a sphere of influence that's just off the, the coast of Florida, this is just unthinkable. It's unthinkable. We can't have this. It's also, it makes us look weak. But didn't we sign something at the end of World War II that said we wouldn't leave our borders and every, every country had national sovereignty? Yeah, but we signed that kind of, I mean, you know, I mean, this is how the game is. <laughs> um, how much is enough for these people? You know, if, if they're extracting billions of dollars of the taxpayers' money by bombing the poorest countries in the world, I mean, why does this got to continue and continue and continue to this day? Isn't isn't that enough to last them a lifetime to do that? Like, you know, just one decade and chill out. You'd think, um, and that's where that's where it becomes speculation because I honestly don't know. I mean, it all seems completely crazy to me. Um, on the other hand, we know there are documents that are starting to come out about how um, I think this was even in Harvard Business Journal. I'm trying to remember where I read this, but um, the future is basically people being micromanaged every moment of their lives on these systems, which will tell you when you can take a break and can tell, you know, and they want this for everybody, you know? Uh, and that, again, that seem that not only does that seem insane, that seems like a non-starter. Like that is very clearly not going to work. That might work for a year. That might work for two years, but there's no way that people are going to put up with that long-term. I, I think, I mean, maybe not. Um, so yeah, that seems insane. But once you start getting into the heads of these folks, I mean, here's a good example, right? Nixon and Kissinger, uh, the Vietnam War is not going very well. And they come up with something called the madman theory. And they say, we're going to invade Cambodia. Okay. And so they just start doing straight, they just start bombing Cambodia. And the expressed reason for this is to make Nixon look a little crazy so that the Russians won't make a move. And the sociopathic nature of even having a thought like that and then putting it into practice where you're just murdering essentially farmers, uh, that's, that's the level that you have to go to. And of course, most people don't think that way. So they don't think that that makes any sense because it doesn't make any sense on a human level. Uh, but there are people in power who make these kind of decisions all the time. And sadly, I just spoke to a guy at the weekend who got back from Cambodia and he said one of the villages he went to, um, the people had missing eyes and missing limbs and from the explosives, mines, et cetera, that, that are still out there. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it is completely psychopathic, like you said. Joe, we've had several questions come in from viewers, and I'll, I'll put those to you. Jake wants to know, surely there should have been an easier way to take JFK out. 
Uh, yeah, there, there, I mean, there certainly would have been. And again, this gets into speculation. Um, but I think part of there's, there's a theory that says basically that you do it in public to let everybody subconsciously know you don't want to mess with this, you know, sort of like the mob, right? Shooting someone, machine gunning somebody in public, um, or like the the guy from the Colombo family where they murdered him in front of his family, like to make a statement. Uh, something like that seems to be going on um, in the, the the doing it in such a public way, as opposed to say having him you know have a heart attack or something. Um, but that does get into speculation. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think it, there there are a million easier ways to kill somebody, but for some reason they made a decision to do it out in front of God and everybody. And who were they setting that example to put the fear of God into? Us. The public. It's, yeah, the public, the general public. And we're going to tell you this very, very stupid story, which, by the way, many people did not believe immediately. <laughs> um, you know, the late Vincent Salandria thought it was completely hanky from the start. And the Monday after the assassination, basically, he started working on it. He said, this is crazy. Um, so on paper, there's so many areas where the story makes no sense, but you're also warned, you know, don't do this. And in fact, Noam Chomsky said something like that in the 60s when uh, somebody I know actually presented information to him about the Kennedy assassination. Chomsky reportedly said something like, well, if they can do this, then they can do anything. And it's too dangerous to go in this area. So I'm going to work in other areas and avoid this subject. Wow. Question from Ray J. Was JFK killing the final takeover by the deep state, the end of democracy? Uh, it's the beginning of the end. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that's right. I mean, you have Kennedy gets killed. Um, Martin Luther King, Bobby, Malcolm, uh, and then a, a number of Black Panthers who were trying to separate from the state, essentially, on a micro level. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's basically right. It's been a uh, it's been a nightmare ever since, essentially. Next question is from Jake. How many shooters were there? Where were they placed? Who were they? Yeah, I don't know, and I don't really. That's not really my area. I don't pursue those questions. Um, there's lots and lots of theories about. I mean, the grassy knoll seems reasonable to me. Um, Maybe there was a policeman, you know, all, all this stuff, right? I don't really get into all that stuff. Um, that I'm not the right guy to ask those questions of. Right, let's see how high up the ladder we can go with this then. So <laughs> if the presidents and vice presidents are pieces on the chessboard and you've cited the Pentagon, CIA, and other national security agencies, are those agencies instruments of who? Is it the captains of big... Um, the military industrial complex or big oil, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's another good question. So is there a, what, a council? Is there a, is there a group of eight or something? Or the committee of 100, like Richard Nixon, who got him into office? Um, I think there's a lot of different striations that go through. And I don't know if there's like a titular head. I don't think so. 
Um, but what I do think happens is that there are certainly very powerful families that are involved and that has a continuity. Um, but also I think these systems are set up to assist with power in whatever form. So I'll, I'll give you a good example. No one really questions anymore um, whether the United States was involved in the uh, kidnapping of Salvador Allende, the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile on September 11th, 1972, first September 11th. Um, but that was organized by some of the same people that, if I'm right, would also be uh, involved in organizing the Kennedy assassination in the same manner, right? So the same people who are making the decisions, more or less, to say, we're gonna overthrow Chile, are also involved in the overthrow of the United States, right? I think that stands as a reason. Um, and the same thing would be true like in Arbenz and Guatemala and you know all the other places, Trujillo and the Dominican Republic, these guys that we hire, um, we put them in power and then maybe we don't want them anymore, we get rid of them, whatever. We do this kind of thing all the time and arguably Zelensky right now. Um, if I was Zelensky, I would be worried. I would be looking at the past history of people who have made these deals with the United States and what happens to them, right? They're in power for a little while and then we don't need them anymore and see you later. Um, so yeah, I think, that, I think that those, there are various groups and organizations that are all sort of involved and some of them are more powerful than others at different times. You know, sort of like what uh, Carl Oglesby wrote about in the Yankee and Cowboy Ward. There are, you know, at times the highest levels of the United States cooperate and other times they don't cooperate. It just depends. Um, but I don't think there's a doctor evil in charge of everything. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. Do you know the families that were involved, the names of the families that were involved in the Kennedy assassination? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would prefer not to. <laughs> so it seems to me then, if someone is in the way of a number of powerful families that person's got to go. However, that is coordinated. Once that person's an enemy of so many of these families, a decision is made and they've got to go. Is that is that what you're, you're speculating? I, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's it's something like that. So, they, so we're looking at um, meetings, you know, at high levels, and say, look, this is what we can do. This is, you know, because the one of the things about the Pentagon, right, is they're constantly planning things to do. Like, if this happens, then this is how we respond. Uh, if we need to get rid of this person or we need to get rid of this problem, this is how we respond. Um, and I've, I've made jokes about this in the past. Like, if we, if every individual behaved like the Pentagon does, we would make plans to burn our neighbor's houses down and kill them all in the, in the case we have to. You know, if there's something, you know what I mean? But again, people don't think this way. This is like these psychopathic institutions that exists uh, that are that are looking at this and thinking that this makes sense at all. So the same people, in other words, that would be game planning how we would invade Australia. Let's say if we had to, are also the same people who would game plan. What if we have to kill a president? And some of the most dangerous psychopaths throughout history have purported to have a noble cause, like Adolf. Yes. Do you think that the Cold War played a role in this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's kind of, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of my central thesis, because at the end of World War II, obviously, we accepted 
a large number of Nazis, right? Operation Paperclip, which most people are aware of. Um, and a lot of those guys went into NASA, again, as most people know, although I know a lot of people who have heard of uh, Werner von Braun, but they don't realize that like NASA was largely composed of Nazis. At that time, it was not just von Braun. Um, and a lot of them went into the Pentagon Historical Division, uh, which my mentor, John Judge, one of the things that he found when he was looking is that the Warren Commission uh, was largely written by one person, uh, a person who was in the Nazi historical division, who then was moved into the Pentagon historical division and wrote the Pentagon's official history of World War II. So the official history of World War II, the Pentagon, is written by a, a, a Nazi. Um, and that same guy then goes on to write the Warren Commission. Uh, but you find this to be true, like, all over the place. Um, you know, Reinhard Galen was a guy who had a spy network uh, inside Germ uh, inside uh, the Soviet Union. And so when he came over to the United States, he basically said, uh, you know, hey, I've got this whole network, and we can put this network to work for you. And Alan Dulles bought this, and they brought him in. And they mostly fed a bunch of nonsense to the Pentagon about the Soviet Union for the next 50 years, uh, in which they wildly exaggerated their capabilities. Mm -hmm. But this was good for the Pentagon because this means more money, more tension, more, you know, this is positive for everybody. And that's what it comes down to. It's like, it's good. Again, it's good for business. Do you think history could repeat itself with Trump then? Because it seems that Trump has pissed off the same alphabet agencies as uh that were against kennedy that were against reagan if trump becomes the president would a move be made against him like we saw with reagan and jfk i don't think so because you could get to trump in other ways you don't need to kill trump right trump has no motivating ideology other than self-interest so you know you'd, you'd make all kinds of deals with him you give him his own tv show you know what I mean? You don't have to shoot. Okay. All right. <laughs> let's let's um, go over to some of these others you've written extensively about. I mean, we had Tim Tate on about RFK, and we've interviewed mm -hmm. Joey Torres, who was in California prison for 40 years. I think at least 10 of it with Saran Saran. He told us some stories from Saran Saran. Amazing. Um, what, what's your perspective on, on the RFK situation then? Um, I don't think I, I don't think I have that radical uh, a uh, position on it. I mean, I've given talks about RFK, but I think about it, in some ways RFK is the simplest. I mean, I guess in some ways it's it's complicated because of the MK Ultra angle, but the actual details of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy are very simple. You know, Sirhan Sirhan is three to six feet in front of him. The wound that ultimately kills Bobby Kennedy is the back of his head. It's at contact range, according to the coroner, uh, the guy who actually, like, you know, his job is to be the coroner of L.A. Um, and so it's impossible. It's simply not possible. And then there's 200 witnesses that see this. So there's no way that Sirhan killed Bobby Kennedy flat out, period. Um, whether he was firing bullets, I know Lisa Pease has said that they're blanks. Um, could, could be. I, I don't know. And that would make a certain amount of sense to me because if you have, if Sirhan is this MK Ultra uh, victim who's sort of mindlessly pulling a trigger, 
uh, he could accidentally kill the guy who's supposed to kill Bobby Kennedy, right? So maybe you don't do that. Um, so that makes a certain amount of sense to me. But the central issue is that there's Sirhan could not have killed Bobby, period, 100%. It's impossible. Um, you have to come up with a lot of crazy stories. And in fact, there have been speculations. Well, what if what if Bobby was like twisted and like moving this? Yeah, he didn't twist and put his head up against the guy's gun. I mean, it just didn't happen. Um, so yeah, no, I think I think that case is pretty obvious. So you mentioned MK Ultra. Then, what methods would have been used on Saran Saran to get him to the crime scene? Well, with Jolly West, he used to call uh, psychic driving. Um, I don't know, you know, all the specifics of it, um, but the idea is that you are traumatizing somebody, and then you know, either playing a tape or having other methods of inducing an idea into someone in what are pretty crude ways. Um, there was a Dr. Ewan Cameron who at the time that he was practicing was the head of the American Psychological Association, the Can Canadian Psychological Association and the World Psychological Association. And what he was doing up in Canada was he was getting women and giving them a whole bunch of drugs and putting tapes on them and you know, horrible stuff. Right. Um, and those techniques seem to have been adopted for other purposes. And one of those purposes being possibly to use on Sirhan Sirhan. So one of the popular theories about RFK is that, you know, the Kennedys took money from the mafia. But when they got in power, you know, he started flexing his muscles against the mafia. Is that a scapegoat scenario? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I've never seen anything that led me to believe that that was true. I know a lot of people have said that because of, uh, of Illinois, uh, you know, specifically that they were involved in Chicago and dead people were voting and all that stuff. I mean, it's I mean, Mayor Daley, you know, was Mayor Daley, uh, but I've never seen anything that that showed me that 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 made me think that that was true. Put it that way. Uh, I mean, it, I guess it's possible. Um, but again, it also doesn't really matter because even if that were true, the mob didn't do it. So what are we talking about? So how did all this affect Kennedy Sr.? Because it was his you know, dream to have his, his son become the president. As these assassinations are occurring, is he, is, is he not clicked up with these families? Is he trying to you know, prevent this or, or, or react to this in any way? Well, yeah. No, I think I think you're right. And I think... I mean, but you have to remember, too, there's something of a tradition of that, right? Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a traitor to his class, right? He was, he was of a higher, he was sort of an aristocrat who became a, a, a president of the people. I mean, that, that happens sometimes. You do have these oddballs. And, you know, Gore Vidal was another one, right? He was not, even though he hated, the, you know, he hated Kennedy. He thought, you know, that he was sort of a lightweight um, but there are people who can be raised in a particular class and then not share those class interests for various reasons. I mean, you know, people are individuals. They have varying degrees of intelligence and willpower, and some people are able to, to sort of get out of that mindset, um, you know, for, for various reasons. And I, I, I think that's kind of what's happening with Kennedy. Um, and I've argued that in my own zine, that, that he was breaking away from something, and he knew he knew the risks. I mean, that's the thing, right? When you, when you're born in that situation, you have more of an idea of how power actually works than other people who are, have not had that experience. 
And what about the recent Kennedy? Are there risks for him ongoing because of, you know, going back way back? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm scared for him. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I don't like to put it out in the, in the air, but um, no one is more aware, put it this way, of the risks than Bobby Kennedy Jr. to doing anything against the state. Right? He has more evidence than anybody of what happens. Because it's not just it's not just John, it's not just Bobby. I've argued, I, I write a series of zines on various topics for microcosm publishing, and one of them is about Ted Kennedy. And there have been multiple attempts on Ted Kennedy's life that most people are not aware of. And I try to put that in context with Chappaquiddick, which is a very interesting. That's a whole. That's a long story. But, um, but yeah, no, no. Bobby Jr. is fully aware of what he's doing because it, it's, and I'm sure that's. You know, there was a lot of conversations leading up to this about do I really want to do this or not? You know. So do you think subconsciously he's martyring himself? Oh, I could see. Yeah, I can't. I couldn't tell you that. That's getting a little too psychological, and I don't. I don't know. I'm, I've I met him one time at a, like a handshake thing. So yeah, I can't. I wouldn't even be able to speculate. You got a question from Ray J. Let me find it. Didn't Jolly West have contact with Charlie Manson in the clinic yes. in Haight-Ashbury? Yeah, Jolly West is, is everywhere. Um, and the head of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and I, I've talked about this a little bit, not a lot, but it was a, uh, uh, you guys are familiar with Vacaville Prison up in Northern California in the 50s. There was a congregation of you know people going through there, including Charlie Manson and, and uh and Desinke and, uh, you know, Tim Leary. And, you know, it's, you know, it's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, Jolly West turns up like a bad penny, like like a lot of these guys do. Um, all, you know, every time somebody, something weird happens, it turns out that, you know, Jolly's in the background doing his experiments. Uh, but yeah, no, I think there are these, and I think, I think there are people now that kind of serve that same purpose. I'm not going to name any of them right, right at this moment, but I think I got a beat on a couple of them. Um, that are doing the same thing that those guys used to do, you know, 50 years ago. Why did Martin Luther King and Malcolm X have to go? Oh man. Okay. Um, so man, that's a, that's a long, quite, that's kind of a long answer, but so for me, we Mal love long answers on this channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, Malcolm, it gets back to, um, when Malcolm becomes truly dangerous to the state, right, is in the year before he's assassinated. Because in 64, he goes on this tour. He goes to, first of all, he goes to Mecca. And then he goes on this kind of tour to various countries, countries that are designated enemies of the United States. Um, and he's treated like an ambassador. So much so um, that somebody wanted to prosecute um, Malcolm X under the Logan Act, like which is a is a is, it's a law that says you can't form like that you can't go out and form an agreement with another country on your own behalf. Like you know, I Joe Green and Brazil have a treaty. Like that doesn't work, right? <laughs> um, so Malcolm becomes dangerous precisely when he stops using the kind of inflammatory rhetoric that he had been using, right? Because now he's going to become that black messiah that is talked about so often in those COINTELPRO documents that are coming out of the FBI, right? Hoover wants to prevent the rise of a black messiah. And that includes Malcolm, it includes 
Dr. King. Uh, it includes Fred Hampton, which is somebody that not a lot of people know about, although they made a movie about him a few years ago. Um, so I, I think that's what's going on there. Um, because the, the the deal, and the, the Panthers too, The pan, what, what made the Panthers so dangerous was when they started taking kids out of the so, school system, getting them milk, and teaching them the real history of America, right? So this is very dangerous. This is not in the interests of power. And clearly they became dangerous, um, but they did not have to come up with elaborate theories or elaborate situations. Uh, in the case of Fred Hampton, they just gave him second all and murdered him in his bed. And they could get away with it because he was young and black. And especially in 1969, right? It was just, oh my God, they got rid of this dangerous radical. And, you know, it was easy to sell that story back then. So that's Malcolm and then Martin Luther King. Martin is largely the same thing because Martin, you know, has been, he'd been um, the target of death threats from the FBI, hmm. right? <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover is encouraging you to kill yourself. Uh, clearly, you've made a name for yourself. And it's the same thing. What did, what did Martin Luther King do? He got a million people to march on Washington. That was unprecedented, right? So he becomes, he's a very, very powerful figure and a voice for peace. But the key thing, in my opinion, with Martin Luther King is that on April 4th, 1967, he gives a speech where he talks about Vietnam for the first time. And he says, I can no longer support this. I can no longer support the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. It's the United States. And it's an incredible speech. Everybody should read it. It's fantastic. Um, and he sort of obliquely references even the Kennedy assassination late in that speech. It's fantastic. But April 4th, 1967, he gives that speech. April 4th, 1968, he's murdered. Exactly one year to the date that he makes that speech. Again, making a point, right? We're, gonna, we're circling this and saying... That's when we're going to do this. John Lennon. Lennon is an interesting one. And, and so here's another one of these bad penny theories, right? Okay. So there's, there's a few weird things about the Lennon assassination, but the thing that really threw me is that of all people, there's, there's a witness to the murder of John Lennon. His name is Jose Perdermo. He's an anti-Castro Cuban who's at the Bay of Pigs. These guys pop up everywhere, okay? And just so that, you know, we don't forget that when Watergate happened, Ed Howard Hunt brought his guys in, which were a bunch of anti-Castro Cubans that had been at the Bay of Pigs. And Hunt called them up. And when he was testifying, he said that he was able to get them uh, within like 10 minutes, all of them together. And they hadn't spoken to each other for, you know, a decade, essentially. Mm. But these are these stay behind units. These are these guys. They're ready to go at any moment. Um, so I immediately thought, you know, when I, when I was first researching the Lennon thing, which I kind of did by accident, uh, and I said, the witness is an anti-Castro Cuban, which, by the way, and he told uh, Chapman to run. What a strange thing to say. And then, but he then repeated it to the press, which is bizarre. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I think Lennon is is also strange. Lennon had gotten onto um, 
people's radar because of his activities against Richard Nixon. And Nixon had specifically put Lenin on the enemies list. And I think the reasoning was something similar that, you know, uh, a messiah, like a figure that can inspire young people to go in one direction or another, um, that maybe he had made himself politically dangerous. I thought that if you had asked me about this probably 20 years ago, I would have thought that that was kind of absurd. Um, but you have to put yourself in the mind of the people who are doing the thinking in this case. You know, it's not, it, is that a logical argument? No, but it might seem logical to someone who is deeply paranoid and afraid of anything getting in the way of the machines of progress. So do you think Charles Manson played a role, had a purpose for these vested interests? I do, and that's a really long conversation. So, uh, yeah, I used to tell people all the time, Manson's become a popular subject largely, I think, because of the book uh, Chaos. Um, but I used to tell people, Charles Manson is the most famous serial killer who never actually killed anybody. Um, and the whole, the whole story about Manson is that this guy was able to convince a bunch of other people to do the murdering for him uh, based on this conspiracy theory, which is what it is, that Vincent Bugliosi cooked up about Manson wanting to start a race war. Uh, which Manson always said he never understood and made no sense to him personally, which I thought was funny. Um, yeah, no, the, the, the Charles Manson case is extremely Yankee. And it, it's, it's very, we, there, were, it, there were FBI informants inside the Manson family. And you would have thought they would have been able to prevent the murders had that been, you know, if, but that never happened. Like the informants never said, hey, by the way, guys, these guys are going to you know, kill Sharon Tate and all these people. Um, and I think you have to also have to look at it, the fact that Spawn Ranch was a movie studio, um, which would tell you something about what was really going on there, that, that, that this whole thing is a put up job, essentially. And Manson was screwed up. I mean, Manson was in bad shape. Um, you know, he obviously had a horrible life. Um, and uh, I think he was preyed upon by other people, certainly. Yeah. And that continued in the prison system because we've interviewed Michael Thompson, leader of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang back then. And they used uh, Manson. Manson was terrified and they made his followers, the women, uh, bring stuff into the prison for them. Otherwise he was going to get it. Yeah. So we've, we've heard many accounts of, of, you know, what happened to him in prison. Um, all right, we're getting near the end then. So this is quite a bleak um, scenario, <laughs> isn't it? It seems like these families have got an iron grip on world events and control over the public is there any hope for any of us under these yeah. under this rule yeah i think so i mean there's there's always hope as long as there's people of goodwill willing to resist whatever the hell's going on um i do think that more people need to inculcate an attitude of non-cooperation I'm, I'm a big fan of non-cooperation in general um if you are being told or uh, being ordered to do something that is clearly stupid or counterproductive or not in your best interest, then don't do it. Yeah. I think that's important. But, but we can't non-cooperate in decisions to go to war. What if these psychopaths, yeah. you know, take it to the brink of, of nuclear war? It's really possible. I mean, and some people would point to the protests of the 60s as helping. I'm not sure how much they really helped to stop things, but it didn't hurt 
And it did at least bring attention to the fact that there were large numbers of people who disagreed with what was going on. Uh, and I also think that that has value, that demonstrating the fact that, no, this is not, we don't agree with whatever the hell our government's doing. Um, we're, we're not going to play ball with that. I, I think that's important. And, you know, you've worked with Oliver Stone. Is his assessment and your assessment, are they the same about JFK? Um, I'm, I mean, I don't know about every detail, but in general, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been fascinating, Joe. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the main website is Joe Green JFK, which is the easiest place to go. Um, I also have a publishing arm, uh, called say something real press that people can look at. And, uh, I'm also affiliated with the hidden history center and the, uh, the center for, um, oh God, I just forgot the name of the place that I'm, it happens. Joe Green JFK. You can get to everything through there. So I had a brain for it. Have a great rest of your day in Texas, my friend. And thanks for sharing thanks. your wealth of knowledge. Cheers, Joe. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Take care.